This is episode 66 of the Landscape Photography Show, and on this podcast episode, we're talking with photographer Julian Elliott. Now, Julian was joining us from the UK while we were recording. However, Julian lives in the Loire Valley of France. And, you know, when we first started talking about doing an interview, I thought, okay, another UK photographer reaching out, wanting to be on the podcast. And I had heard of Julian before. However, I, I locked in this interview because I'd never had anyone who was actually living in France who was doing vlogging, who was doing photography, who I wanted to have on the podcast. So I think that's where it sets him apart. Now, as we got to talking, I realized that this was going to be a really beneficial interview for a lot of photographers, especially photographers who aren't really familiar with people who could inspire them, who they could gain inspiration from, and also who are looking to get a little bit of income from their money using stock photography. So we're talking about stock photography near the end of our discussion and and how you go about getting copyright on your images and finding any infringement on that copyright, which is very useful if you're looking into getting income from your photography. But during the podcast episode, we talk a lot about travel photography, cultural differences if you're traveling for your landscape photography and taking photographs in other cultures. And then we're also talking a lot about Julian's mental progression through the pandemic. So through lockdowns, as somebody who travels so much, what does that do to your creativity mentally and how he progressed through that thought process? The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, what's up, guys? We're here with Julian Elliott. Uh, Julian reached out to me via email, and I was actually excited to see his email come in on getting to come onto the podcast because I don't think that we've ever had a photographer who's living in France come on to the podcast. We've had photographers who have lived in France in the past, uh, and, and Alex Stroll when he came on, but Julian reached out to me and said, hey, I don't know if you've had this experience or background come on the podcast, so I'm excited to talk to him. Julian, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, that's okay. It's good to meet you. Why don't you, why don't you jump off the podcast really getting us familiar with, with how you got started in photography and some of your background there? Yeah, sure. I mean, basically, I picked up a camera and I think it was uh 2004 i had like this tiny fuji um compact camera and had started to to discover paris the city of paris and then i found that that camera just wasn't doing what i really needed to and um i'd become friends with my local shop which is still out there actually that's um would do the printing the photographs and was saying what it was that i wanted to do and he said to me you want to you want an SLR or nowadays a digital SLR. So this was then April 2005. And um, so I sort of went home and did a bit of research here and there. Um, and then I ended up with a Canon 350D. Why not Nikon? No idea or 
anything else. So I ended up with Canon 350D with a kit lens. And then what I proceeded to do is something that I loved to do when in Paris was the night. So I loved doing nighttime photography with the, the traffic trails and stuff. So then that led me getting my first tripod, you know, very, you know, not the best tripod, but it was something. And it enabled me to just do a little bit more long exposures with the nighttime stuff and get the traffic trails. And then um, started reading more and more, uh, reading more and more books, finding information useful, not useful. And then um, got into using graduated filters and then sort of went from there. But um, something I will say is in the very early days is that the, the amount of information that we have available to us now is a lot more than there, there was when I first started. The, there, the information was there, but if you sort of asked people how it is that you did things, you didn't always get the answer you needed. So I remember struggling with the concept of graduated filters and so far as the correct metering of it and um, it took four years to get somebody to properly answer me as to how it was you do that that might tell you what it was like back in the day as it were to to get that information because it's for example with metering grads it gets repeated every single year in in the photography magazines and what you will see is it says meter the uh, the midtone in the foreground and you think okay where's the midtone and that's always the, I, when I teach people on my workshops, you know, if people want to know how to meet for grads, I say, okay, go and find the midtone. And they're like, well, where is it? But if you say to somebody, go and find me a black or a white, and they can find it really quickly. So I think that's something that's, that information is a bit kind of um, off kilter in some respects that it's not helping. And I was actually talking to a lady a couple of days ago for a, a talk I'm doing and um you know, she said to me, oh, I don't have mirrorless. I'd like to. And I said, why? She said, well, I've got an SLR, a digital SLR. And I said, that's probably better to learn on than a mirrorless because with a mirrorless, you're not really getting to learn the fundamentals of photography and learning how to meter a scene properly. So I'm very glad that when I came into photography, mirrorless wasn't there. And that if I need to meter something, I can because I've got that skill to do it. What drew you to... France specifically, and, and why France, and how did you end up in the Loire Valley? Um, why France? I, do, I just loved going. I, I just loved going to Paris. I found found it a really nice city to visit. As far as photography, there seemed to be tons there. Although you know, I was living in, at that time living in Salisbury, which is an hour and a half from London. It kind of never really occurred to me to go. To London. I think that's very typical of people you live somewhere and don't really explore your backyard, although certainly with all the lockdowns at the moment, that's happening a lot more. Um, and then just sort of loved photographing, as I said, you know, loved photographing Paris. And um, but then my wife is French, and so that's how I ended up in the Loire Valley, and that's where she's from, is that area. So it was a case of the south of England or the middle of France. So it wasn't a difficult decision to say goodbye to the mid to southern England and head to the Loire Valley. I will say, can we set the record straight here for I, there's like a rift and I have a lot of listeners in, in yeah. the United States and I have a lot of listeners in, in other countries, too. But there's like a rift between the United States and France when it comes to cultures. OK, so, yeah, I've been 
to Paris myself and, and mm-hmm. absolutely loved it, had a great time. But the thought from other people before we went was, well, they're, they're very rude to people. <laughs> when, when in fact, I, I just want to say, and I'd love to get your feedback on this too, is I think it's a, a misunderstanding of cultures in that, for example, if you go into a restaurant yeah. in the United States, we stand back or, or we, we, we stand back and, and wait to be approached by the person who seats you in a restaurant. Yeah. In France, it, it's appropriate to approach them and then that gets the conversation going. So, so they see the United States people as being rude uh, and we see them as being rude. You know, I, I think that at the end of the day, David, there's rude people everywhere around the world. And it's not, I don't think, I mean, I've, I've heard that so many times that the French are rude. But then I find um, being here, people are rude, you know, and I'm English. So, you know, at the moment, I'm currently sat in my father's house in, in southern England, back in Salisbury. And, um, you know, the other day I went up the the back of where he lives, there's, um, there's a petrol station attached to that petrol station is a small shop i didn't see for example um that there was a traffic light system just to get into the shop so this guy just looked at me and said hey get in line and it's like whoa hold on i didn't even see that was there i you know i walked up here the other day i've li- i've lived in actually well I've been, i lived here for 35 years and then i'm now back here at the moment stuck that's another story but um you know, and I've never, never experienced this before. So there's rude people everywhere. And I think a lot of the time as well is that we are very lucky as English speaking people that there's a lot of places that you go to in the world that um, you don't really need to learn the other language. But mm. I think the French are very proud of the French language. And so therefore, and I say this with my photography talks as well that I do for people is that when you go to another place, don't expect them to learn your language. You're going to their country. And so, for example, um, I do a talk on Mongolia. I've been to Mongolia twice. And, you know, you walk up to people and if you say, hey, you know, can I take your photo? They're just going to look at you and go, Ugvi, no. But if you say, San, Zambano, hello, in Mongolian, then you might get a little bit further. And then last year I, I went to Vietnam. So... It's the same thing, you know, you go up to people and you say, Xin chào, and they're like, you speak Vietnamese? And they're really surprised. So it then breaks the barrier down. And I think that's that's very typical of tourists. They'll go somewhere they won't learn. I think it's very prevalent in the English language speaking world that we don't tend to, to learn another country's language. And I think that's half the battle at times that um, if you do, you find you get so much more. Um, an example would be uh, I was doing something for my YouTube channel. It's, you know, it wasn't the greatest images that I was producing, but it was sort of something to keep people occupied of showing people different French castles in the Loire Valley that they wouldn't see. And um, I was in this small village, got talking to a lady in the village because I, I speak French. You know, I've been there 10 years and um, she started saying to me, hey, did you know there's a two kilometer long tunnel from that castle to a farm outside the village? It's like, no, wow, that's cool. Though. That's almost like, you know, um, fantasy stuff that you would read about as a kid of secret tunnels and passages. And there was another. But if, if you didn't speak the language, you would never get that information. And so I think that's always a good thing 
before you go to another country is learn a little bit of the language. Certainly, hello, goodbye, please and thank you goes a long, long way. Yeah, I, I remember my wife and I were in like a very small wine shop in, in Paris and we we don't speak French, but we speak French Creole uh, because we lived right. in Haiti and it's, you know, it's, it's a mixture of French and West African. Yeah. Um, when we spoke it to people, though, that even though they probably thought we were like idiots for not knowing the appropriate French language, um, they could understand it and did accept us a little bit more and, and bring us in. And, and it felt very accepting in an environment. I think the thing is, it's because you tried. It's when you don't try, then that's when the the things come, the problems come up. I know when I was in Vietnam last year, um, there's a there's a reason why I ended up in Vietnam for a month. But um, it's I I got to know local people very well, and certainly the tourist office in Hoi An, and um, was astounded at how people would go into that tourist office and the way they spoke to them, demeaning. And that was just, I remember a couple came in wanting to um, wanting to hire a moped. And it's like, hi there, my, my friend in the tourist office, you know, she's like, um, hi, can I help you? Yes. Um, we, can we hire a moped, please? Yes, of course. Uh, can we have it now? And it's like, whoa. And I just, I had to sit back and not say anything. But it's when you take their shoes, there's the old saying of walk a mile in my shoes, that you, when you sit back, stop, sit back and look, and you start to see what goes on and how people get treated. It's just like, whoa, come on. And I know when I was, um, when I was in Vietnam doing the job that I was doing there, I, was, I got taken around by a guide who became a friend of mine. And I said to her, well, tomorrow I'm not going to see you. You're not going to be there with me. So if I need to go and ask somebody, can I take your picture, please? What do I say? So she taught me the Vietnamese um, to go up to somebody and say, can I take your picture, please? And suddenly when you know that, people are are really surprised. And then I... The other, when you get, when for example, you're when you're in Vietnam, when you say hello, people will always be saying "xin chào," but they you don't hear them say, for example, "good morning," "good afternoon," "good evening." So I remember going up to a lady in the market and said "good morning" in Vietnamese, and she looked at me with a, a puzzled look and said, "So, what do you want?" <laughs> it's just because it was just um, because I, I thought well, if I employ a, a slightly different tactic, maybe it will get me further, and it did. So I ended up with quite a lot of friends in, that I've still got in Vietnam that I keep in contact with. And I'm really uh, pleased that I did meet them and I've learned a little bit of their language. Well, let me ask you this. As somebody who travels to so many countries and, and as a travel photographer, how much emphasis before the trip do you put into learning some phrases or learning about the culture? Um. Not necessarily the culture, I would say. I think it depends on where it is you're going. Certainly, so if you go to Mongolia, you definitely need to be aware of some cultural differences and things that are likely to happen. Um, but I think I try to learn at least hello, goodbye, 
please thank you numbers are useful as well so um, I can't remember Japanese numbers but I was in Japan last February I think it was I was in Osaka and um, there's a view of Osaka that's a really kind of cool view and the guy was said to me you know well, you can't go here just yet and or he was asking me that um, when would you be finished now you can use your google translate on your phone which is an option but I, I remember earlier in the afternoon i'd been trying to learn japanese numbers i think it's like something like that and you know when you start learning how the numbers are put together in japanese you get to 10 and then you can get to 100 once you get to 10 because you say for like tw uh, 20 is 210 stuff like that and it's the same strange enough in um vietnamese and mongolian so you know, learning numbers is always useful. Well, I, I try as much as I can. Um, I've learned a little bit of um, Italian, just here and there, smattering of it. Found out how I can convert some of my French into Italian. And, and I don't really know, so I haven't really visited Spain a lot. Um, so, yeah, I try. I try where I can to do it. Um, some languages don't stick at all, but try to do something. A lot of the time, though, you're not really coming into contact with people that don't speak English, certainly doing what I do, you sort of tend to be out out and about in the street or in a hire car in the middle of the countryside, so you're not tending to meet people, but I try to learn, do what I can to make it just a little bit easier. Is it intimidating for you still going into those situations of maybe not knowing completely where you're going or stepping into a new country? No, I think it, it, in the beginning, yes, there's always that sense of trepidation. I know the first time I went to Mongolia, I remember being on the Aeroflot flight from Russia, from Moscow, going into Ulaanbaatar, looking out of the window and just thinking, what in the hell have I let myself in for? And then the next time that I went, I just looked out the window and thought, oh, I'm back. I know where I am. I know where I can go to withdraw money. I know where I can go to eat in the evening if a guide isn't with me and stuff like that. So it was familiar. I think some it depends on, on where you're going. Japan, you know, they often talk about the culture shock. For me, the culture shock on which I relate to people is that uh, basically you, you're once you get out the airport, certainly if you go to Osaka, is don't expect anything to be in English and don't expect people to speak English either. So you're you know, and all the signs are in Japanese. So you, you feel just like a, a child because you can't communicate. And it's really strange, but it's it's kind of good fun. I mean, technology does help to some extent because you're able to use things like Google Translate. But, you know, I mean, trepidation, no, not really. I mean, I think that, um, I think it depends on what it is you're doing. If I was going somewhere completely on my own, going across China, for example, I think that might be maybe a little bit intimidating at first. Um, I think it all depends on where it is you're going and to what you what you should expect. I know another photographer that inspired me when I first started, is, is, he said that if you ever read the Foreign Office advice of where it is that you're going, you'd never walk outside your front door. So, you know, because you always read these things like, you know, if you read the Foreign the, the British Foreign Office advice for... For Mongolia, I think it says there's a mild threat of terrorism, something like that. So for some people, they're like, oh, I'm not going to go there. And it's like, why not? Once you leave the city, you're not going to be meeting anybody apart from the herder family that you might be staying with in the, in the group you're in. You know, the, the chances of being involved in any, any terrorism act is very, very slim 
probably zero percent. Very, very safe place to go. Do you see in your travels human connectivity being stronger in other places? And, and can you relate it back to English mean, culture, uh, French culture? Do you mean as far as like how people are, like when you were talking about Americans versus French? So that's how people. Um, I to say like Japan. It, it, it's I know the people I did speak to that. Um, that did speak English. When you say to them that they've got a beautiful country, they're really shocked. <laughs> As if they, it's like really, oh wow, thank you. And it's like, but it is. It's just really nice. Um, you know, I, I think, it, you know, as you said to me earlier, like the French versus Americans. I think there's good things and bad things about every country. There's some things you see that you don't agree with, and then some things you do agree with. You know, I find, for example. Getting around London with a suitcase is horrendous. It's just ridiculous trying to get from one terminal station of a railway to another with a suitcase, unless you take a taxi. If you go around Tokyo, it's just a breeze. And you think, why can they do it, but the British can't? So, you know, I, I think it depends. But you just have to go with the flow at times with a lot of this stuff. As someone who travels so much for their photography, how have you been mentally going through this time of global pandemic and lockdowns and, you know, canceling trips and unsure yeah. about travel plans? Um, in the initial stages, it was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And then suddenly um, I found a way through. So I started organizing myself. So my Lightroom catalogue was 500,000 images, and that was because I do a lot of time-lapse work, so I just kept everything in one Lightroom catalogue. So what I did is I sorted that out. That took a month to sort out. And then by that time, uh, Zoom had broken down a lot of barriers, so I was getting a lot of requests to do talks. Um, and as of now, I've done 131 talks in six countries. So I've been grafting a lot. And then um, in uh, August, I thought, I better, I haven't done anything on my YouTube channel since March, I think it was, because I've been too preoccupied with business, trying to make sure I've got money. Um, because YouTube is just not the be-all and end-all. I'm a professional photographer, first and foremost. YouTube is a is a sideline just to... to basically show people where I live and stuff that's there. Um, so I went out with my kids and I thought, oh, let's just sort of do it twice a week and started finding subjects to go out and do. And, you know, you, you just keep finding stuff. I think if you can keep yourself inspired, um, it's, it's really quite simple to, to do that. I think some people, um, I think when you work for yourself, you get into this rhythm of motivating yourself and when you work for a company, I think it's quite hard at times because, you know, if there's some things you go in and, and it's kind of works given to you, you're given your daily things to do. Here's your list of tasks that you need to do today, whether it be in McDonald's, whether it be delivering, whether it be working in a shop that you go in, you open up the shop, you, you know, open up the cash register. And so there's things you go through. And when you become self-employed, you know, you know what you need to do. So you motivate yourself. I mean, I've seen people the other day I, um, in a particular area of the United Kingdom that I know saying, 
I can't go out of this county um, because I'm in this particular tier. What can I do? And I thought it's very easy, mate. You get an ordnance survey map, the one to hundred and twenty, the one to twenty five thousand scale, and you just basically look at your county and go, what's there? What historic buildings are there? Are there any um, interesting, you know, landscapes that are potentially there? Um, oh, there's tons of stuff. But people, I think people sometimes at the moment maybe become a little bit lazy they're relying on people like me to just give out information of where stuff is and it's just like go and do some research you know I, I saw an article on abandoned buildings around the world the other day in the newspaper and I thought I wonder what's in France about six hours later <laughs> you just you know and you, because you sometimes you get hooked on something you think oh that's you know I've probably found about six months worth of logs that I could do on abandoned buildings in France of different castles of all sorts of stuff i found a church that's near me but it's in the middle of right in the middle of a forest and i have no idea if you can legally access it or not because it is possibly in an army range which may or may not be open you can drive through it that i know but can you get to the actual abandoned building um that's a chapel or church i can't remember what it is um i don't know um, so it's but people don't do that they won't do it it's less and I think here in the UK they are spoiled at times with stuff because you have things like photography guides to you know to this that and all the other which is great it's absolutely really great and um, I'm involved actually in one myself at the moment um, but it's kind of like people you really do need to just sort of get a map at times and just spend a bit of time and going through different resources phoning tourism boards and seeing what's there you know there's tons of stuff people could do to motivate themselves and they there's i think it's very it's too easy to go down i don't want to go down and through throughout all of this what i've been saying to people when i've been doing a talk is that if you say that things will get better it's not very positive but if you say, say that things are going to get better in the english language it's a much more positive way of looking at it so are things um, going to get better? Of course they are. We've got three vaccines on the horizon. So therefore, there is a light at the end of the tunnel when we are headed towards it. It's not total darkness anymore. Hey guys, I just want to pause real quick to talk about today's sponsor for the podcast, and that's visualwilderness.com. You can go to visualwilderness.com right now and get 33% off of all of my courses that I have on there that are going to help you improve your photography through post-processing techniques in Lightroom and a little bit of Photoshop too on how to blend creative artistic images together. Now I have other courses on there too that you can check out. And right now, again, those are 33% off for a limited time when you use the code David33. Now I also have courses on my personal website that I'm doing the same deal on. So if you go to my website, davidjohnstonart.com, you can find the same price, the same deal using the code David33 for 33% off for a limited time on all of my courses on my website as well. Let's get back to the episode. You mentioned your YouTube channel, um, and I'd be interested to hear your experience with it. Um, and I've had people on the podcast who have hundreds of thousands of followers. I've had people on the podcast who have a handful of followers. Yeah. 
And a lot of their comments on interacting with people uh, has been very similar. So I'd be interested to hear your experience on using YouTube as an outlet, as a photographer to, as you said, break barriers. Yeah, I mean, for me in the beginning, what it was good for was breaking the geographical barrier. So if I tell you the difference between the United Kingdom and France, for example, if you go out to the United Kingdom, there are places that you'll go to, um, beautiful places. You, for example, here from where my father lives, 40 minutes down the road, the iconic um, Corfe Castle, there's all sorts of other things um, that are that all, all within easy reach. And I have the same with it in France. But the difference is, is when you go to these places in the United Kingdom, you inevitably meet photographers all the time. The Lake District is a, is a classic example of that. You meet people all the time with cameras in the Lake District in Scotland, in Glencoe. Photographers are just everywhere. You're tripping over them. But in France, it just doesn't seem to be the same type of scene. So, for example, if you go to Provence in the summer, yes, you'll meet photographers because it's lavender season. But, for example, I was in uh, Cognac uh, about two months ago when the autumn colour was really hitting. Never saw any other photographers at all. And out of all the vlogs that I did between uh, August and December, I think I saw maybe two photographers at most when I was out and about, and that was it. Which is just mind-blowing because it's like, I know people in France have cameras, but where are they? What are they doing? Why, why are they not out? There seems to be this huge sort of landscape photography scene in the United Kingdom, which has a good and bad side to it. The good side is that people are getting out, they are discovering things. The bad side, unfortunately, and it's not something that is talked about and acknowledged a lot, unless you scrape beneath the surface, is that there are these huge cliques that are developing with people whereby... Um, if you see somebody that posts something and you look at it and you think that's you know that's not really right what it is that they they are projecting there um, that if you comment in and say in a um, in such a way that is not overly critical you get leapt on you basically get savaged and I've had this in the last two weeks actually by um, saying you know is this really uh, a good thing to do by doing this. And then basically had somebody from that other channel that had been commenting to my comments come to my channel and then just basically be abusive and then just have to report them. And it's just unacceptable. And I don't know why. um, I think it's keyboard warriors a lot of the time. But um, because the other side of the coin, which we were talking about before, we started the main conversation is that people look at social media insofar as YouTube Facebook, Instagram, that if somebody has tens of thousands of followers and higher, that they must be great. And it's not necessarily the case that that is what it is. And, you know, there's lots of photographers that I know that are exceptional photographers, but they're not necessarily on social media because they don't need it. And you think, well, but they're still good. They are still great photographers. But sometimes you talk about them to people and they're like, well, who's that? And you just think, Wow, really? And I know last year I was on a group of YouTubers and um, was mentioning particular names of photographers that inspired me. None of them have heard of any of them. Or if they had, 
they just didn't really know a lot about them at all, which I found I find really sad. And something that I used to do um, uh, in my past was martial arts. And they say that if you are prepared to drink the water, you must remember the source of where it came from. So I've always been very open of where my inspiration came from. As a photographer, my inspiration did start with initially a photographer called Lee Frost, whose books I would read. It then went into the three um, that are considered the sort of like the iconic British photographers being Charlie Waits, David Ward and Joe Cornish. And then a little bit later, David Nathan, who was basically like me, a travel photographer. And he, through a video of his that I watched a long time ago, inspired me not to worry about sunset, but actually to get up and do the sunrise, to start getting up early and go and capture that dawn light. But you mentioned a lot of these people to YouTubers and they're just like, who's that? They haven't got a clue. And it's like, I think you really need to go back and look. And like in your neck of the woods, you know, if you say to people, have you ever heard of Galen Rao? They'll go, who? <laughs> and they're just, and it's just like, wow. You know, you think, I just kind of think people need to just take a step back a bit from YouTube, that YouTube is not the be all and end all, that the best photographers are not on YouTube. There's many more photographers out there that are exceptional, that are not on social media, but they're just as good, if not better, than what you're seeing on that social media. I think it, it, it's a lot like when we're recording this, it's the last day of the year and, and the year 2020. Um, it, it's a lot like once the year is wrapping up Instagram, you start to see a lot of those posts that have likes counts associated with them. And it's like your top nine photos from the past year. Um, a, a lot of times, and, and I've been messaging a lot of photographers, Julian, uh, about this, and they say, well, it's not even like my favorite photos, or it's not even, you know, the photos that that I think are very good. And and I think in social media bleeding over into YouTube, uh, it's become more of a numbers game that's associated with quality. And, and yes. I don't think that should be the case. Absolutely. I absolutely 100% agree with you that, you know, people are looking, for example, on Instagram with followers that they've got however many tens of thousands on YouTube. It's the same thing that they've got tens of thousands of subscribers. So they must be they like they must be the, the the oracle. And you just look at it and you just think, no, I'm, I'm really sorry. But no, I've been doing this professionally now for nearly 11 years. Um, I think it's 11 years, something like that, coming up 10. I, I can't remember. It seems so long ago now, but it just wasn't there. And it, I think it's become really um, sad, actually, of what it's become insofar as that people people's photography is measured by number of likes and subscribers. And it's like, you know, I, I kind of just think, well, you, you really need to to think again and look at what some of these people are doing. Um, I, I've got a friend of mine that I talk to in uh, in England about this all the time, and he, he very often says to me, go and look at so-and-so, you should just go and see what they're putting up. I mean, I, I watch somebody, I'm not, I'm, I don't want to name names, I think that's really unfair to do that, but was watching a video 
um, a tutorial video by somebody that's got tens of thousands of subscribers demonstrating how to do something and it, the information given was horrendous to, to give to people then especially whereby if it's people that are starting out I'm a great believer if you want to teach people how to do stuff teach them the correct way if at all possible from the very beginning because it saves a whole lot of problems further on down the line I'm having that problem now with guitar I've been playing the guitar for 28 years but because I'm as of this moment I'm actually stuck in the UK waiting to fly home and the weather's not great typical British weather I've started to study music theory to undo what it is that I and well to put back what I shouldn't should have known a long time ago and start to go you know what what am I doing what is this actually doing and I think people aren't questioning, or if they are questioning, like I've questioned people at times, um, is that they get abusive. And that's really sad. And it's really sad. How, how should we as photographers be handling questioning from other people or, you know, different approaches to photography? And, and not only yeah. that, but disagreements in photography. Oh, I mean, I'm on my own channel. I mean, I'm unless somebody is being really upright, you know, you, you look and you just kind of think, well, I'm not sure how to, sometimes it's best to take a step back. You see something come in. And certainly if you're, if a conversation gets started and you can see where it's going, I think the best thing to do is walk away and then go back to it. Um, but I try to handle people as fairly as I can on my own channel. So if people want to ask me questions, then I will. I mean, one of the ones, I mean, I put up something, for example, on um, how to do stock photography. So a guy came along and said, so how many photos have you got in all the different libraries and how much do they make in, in each library every month? And I just thought, well, that's none of your business. That's between me and the tax man. That's got nothing to do with you. <laughs> that's got nothing to do with you. But if, and there's, there's other things. It's kind of quite, it, it can be quite hard to answer. So, you know, sometimes people say, how do you get access to a particular location? It's just like, well, I can't answer that. That's that's me that's got that knowledge to be able to do that the way that I need to be able to do it. Just, just appreciate that I can and appreciate what I can get from it. Don't worry about it. Just worry about improving yourself and getting out there and trying to do it for yourself. Rather, Because I, I think as well as that people, um, another problem that I've come across as well which is is quite sad at times is that um you help people and then you see them grow and then they don't acknowledge where it is that they're getting this information from or because they're they are um aligning themselves with other people they're trying to work their way up the ladder and um I, it's just not a good thing to do i think you must always remember where you've got this this from in the first place so you know, it's just, uh, it's a very strange world out there, social media. You know, I think it's either, there seems to be no middle ground. Like right now, we can have a a conversation that goes back and forth, can agree to disagree on things, we can agree and whatever else. You can't do that on social media. You cannot do it because people take offence at anything and everything. And, you know, you, you can write something and suddenly it's the most amazing thing since sliced bread. Or it's, you know, you're the most negative and, you know, 
vitriolic person there is and you just sort of sit back and think wow is it really like that um and it's really but that's i think that's just how it is i don't think it's going to change i think if anything it might even get worse as it goes on is it discouraging to you uh no (laughs) i've kind of i've been there and and done it so many times whereby you just kind of think unless somebody physically threatens you um then it's just like whatever you know i just get on with it and think well if you don't like it i know other people that do if you don't like what i do if you don't um if you don't want to take on board what it is that i'm telling you that's fine there are other people that do if i'm wrong on something i'm wrong that's fair enough and i think it's always good to admit if you are wrong um but yeah i think it's I don't know. I think it's a it's a very strange medium, certainly YouTube. And I think because we're sort of, I think YouTube's different in Instagram because you're physically presenting yourself. You know, you're there. People can see you, who you are, what you look like, how you act. Um, I mean, I've, I've seen I mean, daft things on YouTube. For example, um, I, I did a vlog last year in Amsterdam. And I did it just after I, I had seen another YouTuber shouting at people to get out of their photograph on a mountain path. And I just looked at that and I just thought, well, one, you've got no right to do that unless they are stood six inches in front of your camera. Then maybe you can gently ask them to move. Um, but at the end of the day, they've got every right to be on that path. That's just just as you have. The fact that they're in your shot, I'm sorry, but they've got every right to be there be there is it irritating of course it is but there's nothing much you can do about it try working in a city when you've got hundreds more people um so yeah and i also as well you you see stuff like that and you think people put that online and i think well you want to be a pro so what you're doing is you're advertising that um, to potential clients you're not patient with people so why would they want to hire you if you're going to do that if you're going to shout at people to get out of the way of your photo, why would a why would a client want to hire you? Because they're just going to go, well, you've got no patience. You don't know how to treat people. I'm not interested in in hiring you at all. You mentioned stock photography just a second ago. This is something that I did want to talk with you about. Um, yeah. Stock photography in general, from conversations that I've had with people is something that they are not interested in getting into because it's viewed as a saturated market. It's viewed as a market that pays pennies on the dollar for for what you can produce as a photographer. Do you see that in in your experience as well? No. And I think the problem is, is because people are talking about their experiences with the Microsoft agencies, such as Mm. Shutterstock, Dreamstime, etc., whereby if you've come from where I came from, which was in the very beginning, I was in a rights-managed library rather than royalty-free microstock. Um, I have seen prices whereby, you know, I've got opened up statements and it's been three, four, three or four thousand dollars in one month. And so therefore it is possible and, the pro- and actually money is still out there. Um, there are agencies out there that are still running on rights-managed, both for stills and footage. And so there is money that is still out there. But I think the problem is now is that you have to have so much material and a a huge variety of material to have a chance of getting there. 
of actually sort of getting a return. And I think that's the thing. And also, I've, also with stock photography, I think the problem is with this is that I know people sort of look at my job and go, well, you travel a lot. It must be amazing. It's like, yes, but what you're not seeing is the day job, the actual day job back at the desk. So I have to process the work, clean it up, do all the captioning, the keywording and stuff like that, because the keywording is crucial to get your image seen. For example, I'm with Getty as a house photographer. So that was always considered like the the ultimate place to get into quite a long time ago. It's certainly in some respects, it's the, it's the best place to be, really. Um, they used to do the keywording for us, but now they've decided that we should do it. So we are having to do the keywording. The thing is that what they what they have done in Getty is that they have, and iStock, is that they've got this system whereby if you put in a keyword, um, it, it might come up with just that keyword or other keywords associated with it. So you've got to then decide which is the best keyword that you should be using to get the image seen in the first place. So if you think, uh, I'll give you a keyword mountain. Okay, you can think mountain, mountainous, mountain range, mountains. So it depends. I don't know what Getty have got in their, in their keyword system off the top of my head, but that, that's what you can be faced with. You've got to think, well, which one is it? Is it just one? Is it two of them? Is it all of them? Which one is it? And you only get 50. So that's what you've got to be doing. And this is where the, the job aspect comes in, into it, whereby people are thinking, oh, I'm going to leave the day job or leave the desk behind. Then you actually find that about 90% of the time you're stuck behind a desk because you're sorting out all sorts of stuff. In terms of stock photography, does it still give you creative expression as a photographer to go out go out and take these photos but then coming back and, and knowing that you still have to do all the work at the desk um i guess with myself how i approach doing stock photography i know in i've seen a lot of stuff a long time ago where people would be i mean the best thing to do with certainly people like getty is you get client briefs so it's better to work with a brief so you know what people actually want. But I mean, I've always produced images whereby it's what I like or I think might sell because I've seen the seen a history of sales and what sells for me. But I always try to make sure that the, the light is right with the images that I'm taking. And um, so, for example, Christmas Day, I went to the famous West Harlem Water Meadows in Salisbury. It was a nice, cool and crisp clear day so it was okay but I went there yesterday morning and the sky was just stunning and although there was frost on the grounds it was actually quite warm so it meant that when the sun came up suddenly there's mist surrounding Salisbury Cathedral which one's better well it is the one with the mist is which one is better um, it just looks so much nicer than just a clear sky across a boring old field and you've got, this is, I think as well, what people, um, I see it on the Alamy stock library where people will sort of take an image and if, for example, they've composed it where there's a street sign on the left, they'll recompose it and do it so the street sign's on the right. And so what happens is you get Alamy saying they've got 200 odd million images, I think it is, 
online and you think, yeah, but it might be 200 odd million images, but there's probably 90% of them are just rubbish, to be honest, because people were using it as a dumping ground and still do. And, you know, anime has its uses, but it's better to really think about the images that you're doing and you'll have a lot more success by doing that. Um, and you also have to realise as well that with stock photography that and I had this last year, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was last year. I met actually a, a YouTuber in Scotland who's uh, quite well known. And um, he, I said to him, you know, it's better weather tomorrow. And, and it was when we were there, it was raining that day we were trying to do stuff. And he said, oh, yeah, but that's boring. And I thought, well... Maybe it is, but I think it depends on what it is you've done as a photographer to know when it will be good and bad. So maybe it's good for photographers, that weather, but if you think for a tourism board, they're not going to want something looking dreary and dismal, which works for photographers, but it's not going to work for a tourism board. So you've got to think what your end usage is going to be. It's not always what is going to please you and your audience is what's going to please the person that's actually going to buy the image in the, in the you know in the last in the last hurdle that's actually a really good point um when i think about stock photography i think about photo theft and and maybe i shouldn't just attribute that to stock photography because you know, people could go on anybody's website and find a way to pilfer an, an image off of their page. How do you protect yourself from photo theft and secure your images with copyright? Um, basically, they get if I find somebody that's taken my work, they get sent an invoice is what happens. Because at the end of the day, if somebody has taken my work without paying for it, then they will end up with an invoice. And as I have, I think it's, uh, I've got a court case in April next year with somebody that refused to pay and um, they've got no right to refuse to pay that bill because basically when you take an image off the internet, unless you have the authorization of the copyright holder and you have done everything you can to get to that copyright and to understand who it is that has the copyright, if you're using it without permission, then you're going to be in trouble. I think uh, the United Kingdom's copyright mechanism is okay, but it's not as robust as the United States. I think the United States has a much better attitude towards copyright. So anything I produce now gets sent to the United States Copyright Office. And for, I think it's $55, you can register 750, 750 images for 50 50 or 55 dollars something like that and so then if somebody takes that work and it's registered then they're in trouble big trouble if it's in the states um how bad has it got for me i've over the last three years i've dealt with a case every four days on average really yes and it's how do not you find that there's many ways that you can find it. So people use Pixi. Um, I find Pixi useful to a certain extent, but their their mechanism for chasing, having been on the end of it, I don't find very good at all. Um, there's a company called CopyTrack, which is actually quite good as well at finding stuff. Um, Google reverse image search, there's Yandex, which is a Russian 
search engine, which you can put in it to English, that throws up different search results again, whereby you, like Google, you upload your image and it will then search for where the image is. Um, Bing, again, the Microsoft search engine, that comes up with stuff. Uh, TinEye, so, you know, you find stuff. And when you, I mean, I found one at the moment whereby it's uh, with my lawyer. I can't say too much about it. I have a lawyer in California that works on, um, just trying to think of the word off the top of my head. They basically, they, they work on a commission basis that they'll take 50% and then going down depending on how much it is that they're going to earn at the end of it. Um, but basically, if in the United States, somebody takes one of your photographs and you happen to have put a copyright in the corner or on the image and they cut it off, then they have an automatic fine of $2,500 for doing that, mm-hmm. which I think is fantastic for copyright holders to be able to have that. And I think the internet, the, I've heard so many excuses over the last three years um, of, well, it was an intern, which is, that's one of the default excuses in the States. It was an intern that did it. So it's like, okay, why is nobody looking over their shoulder and seeing what it is that they're doing? And then you get, I've had people cry on the phone because they said, oh, my boss has asked me to call you. I'm fearful I'm going to lose my job. What can we do? And it's like, well, you talk to me and then we resolve it. But unfortunately, the company does have to have an invoice um, to people threatening me with physical violence for them stealing my work. And I am going to say stealing because at the end of the day, it is theft. If you were to walk into Best Buy, and this is how I put it to people, if you go to Best Buy and you see a nice Sony, let's say a Sony 4K TV, and you think, do you know what? That's really nice. That'd look really nice in my man cave or wherever it is that you want to put it. So you just walk out with it because the price has fallen off. And you manage to get it out the door and then the, the cops come knocking at your door and you say, but there was no price in it. And what, what are you going to say? Do you see where I'm going? And so, and yeah. that's the problem with the that's the problem with Google Images, is that they are they are trying Google Images. You've got this thing whereby you can add in code, and it says whether the image is licensable. The problem with that is, is when the image is legitimately bought from an agency and it goes out to someone, you know, like a newspaper or something like that, they're not going to add in the code. They have no need to do it because they've already licensed it. So you, you, I'm not sure what the answer is, but. You know, then you get the things like, well, I didn't mean to do it. So I then say to people, okay, well, if you didn't mean to do it, let's let's give you another example. You go into your local city. I don't know what your local city is. And over here in the United Kingdom, you've got parking bays in some cities whereby you can pay for 30 minutes or an hour. So say you and I had a meeting. You keep me talking and I overrun my time. Now, you didn't mean to keep me talking, and I didn't mean to overrun that time with the parking bay, but I did, and I've now got a fine. What am I going to do? I didn't mean to do it, but I've still got it. What can I do? You pay it, is what you do, because otherwise you've got no leg to stand on. Copyright laws are very, very, uh, you know, they're very black and white. At the end of the day, it's... If you don't own the copyright to it, if you're not licensing it, you don't have the right to use it, unless specifically 
and you do have to watch this, you've got it from a site whereby it says that, you know, it's Creative Commons, I think it is. You know, you can use it for free. However, what is happening as well is that people are finding images and they're putting, I don't know if this has happened with mine, but they are finding images and then putting those images into those kind of Creative Commons places. And so the photographer is unaware of what's going on. So it's creating another problem. It's a huge, hmm. huge problem out there, um, which is why you've got companies like Pixi. I mean, I, I find it's better to do it yourself. If it becomes abusive, then I do have legal representation in the United Kingdom as well. That helps a lot. And then I know the court process in the United Kingdom. So um, I've successfully taken four people to courts in the United Kingdom. And in each case, they have to pay the bill. And that is that. I've, I've been seeing not only image theft um, in terms of copyright, but also starting to see a lot of my friends in photography who create um, video tutorials are now finding those downloaded and for sale for like $5 on other sites. Would Would you think the process to take legal action against those people would be the same? Um, I think what you've got to watch on YouTube is the, the rights that you assign the video when you upload it. So, for example, I uploaded... Um, and well, I'm not, not in terms of YouTube, but these are courses that they're selling on. Yeah, I mean, that, that is really bad. I mean, I, is, is there, there should be some recourse. Now, I think... I'm not sure of this, but I think the United States Copyright Office, you can now um, register stuff like vlogs with the United States Copyright Office. I can't, I can't remember if you can or can't do that. I'm sure I've seen something recently whereby, you know, there is this mechanism to get stuff like that copyrighted. Because at the end of the day, it is your copyright. Um, it it it, can, it does get frustrating at times. Um, I mean, I've had an incident whereby I uploaded just like a short clip of time-lapse onto uh, Vimeo. And then I found a global insurance provider had linked it onto their own website instead of coming to me and saying, hey, could we buy it from you? They just linked it. And there's, there was a European judgment that says they can do that, which is really wrong to be able to do that. They just hyperlink it in. So they're just taking advantage of it. Um but yeah, I mean, I think that if people are creating stuff that goes on YouTube, it then, is then getting downloaded, and it's not difficult to find out how to download a YouTube video in, in its entirety um, and then selling it, it's theft. Let's end on a positive note here, Julian. Um, yeah. What do you have planned for 2021 um, and looking forward to as a photographer? Um, I think... As far as 2021, what I, you know, as I said um, midway through this, I think if you, you've got to go, are things getting better? Yes, things are going to get better. As of yesterday, a third vaccine was given the medical go-ahead here in the United Kingdom. So I'm sure that will then be rolled out in other countries around the world. That's a positive. So that's going to hopefully unblock everything going forward. It will allow travel again freely between countries or if we have to have some kind of tests you know to show we haven't got the virus going in countries then great you know that's let's just bring that on um i'm not 
even thinking and contemplating of properly travelling until at least Easter. That's when certainly UK government are talking about um, things being unlocked. Um, I guess it depends on other countries. I don't know with France what their their objectives are. Um, and then from there, just think, okay, where can I be going? I don't know. I've got a, a book commission that's coming my way that um, I should be getting, I'm hopefully getting a contract soon. I've kind of got the intent of it. I've been given paperwork that shows it's coming. Um, so that's something that I'll be working on as well. YouTube stuff, I mean, there's just tons of stuff. I was sent some equipment to review before Christmas, which they're probably thinking, where's the review? But I'm stuck here without it. So that's coming. There's there's, there's so much that can be done. Um, I think people, but yeah, I think, um, yeah, there is a lot of, there's a lot of good stuff to come next year, you know, and certainly if we get unlocked, um, you know, I'm, I'm building up my own mailing list of people that are interested in my work and want to come out with me on photography tours and stuff like that. So, you know, I'm looking, I'm, I, don't, I don't want to look back. It's just always look forward to what we can, to you know, what we can and we are going to be able to do. Where can people go to find more out about you? Um, well, I've got my website, so it's julianelliotsphotography.com. So Elliot is E-L-L-I-O-T-T and Julian with an A. Um, I've got my YouTube channel under the same name. I'm on Instagram, Facebook. My Facebook page doesn't have a, a huge following, but I think that's more down to Facebook crippling things than, than anything else. Um, <laughs> it's just I find YouTube a little bit more fairer in that respect of gaining followers. Than, mm-hmm. than on Facebook. You know, Facebook is just like if you put up a post, it starts to gain traction. Then it's like, hey, buddy, you know, if you want to spend $20, we can promote your post. You just think, <laughs> no. <laughs> you, um, yeah, you know that one by the sounds of it. Um, so, yeah, it's just like, uh, no, I, I find YouTube a little bit fairer gaining followers in that respect. Um, but, you know, if people do come on my YouTube channel, just, you know, interact. I, I really try to respond to everything that I can. Just take my YouTube channel as a tiny part of what it is that I do, because at times it's secondary to what I'm really doing. You know, it's not the main focus of my work. Well, he's Julian Elliott. Julian, I want to thank you so much for spending the time to, to come on and talk with us about your journey in photography and your thoughts on it as well. Hey, thank you for having me, David. It's really appreciated.